Welcome to CrossBridge. If you're a guest with us today, I'm so glad that you're here. And my hope for you is the same as it is for everyone at CrossBridge, that you would be able to take one step in your faith towards Jesus, because this is what we are all about. As summer begins to really hit its peak in my home, this means that there's a lot more game playing, a lot more card games, a lot more board games. And while we still play games where I want to win because that's who I am, it's funny that we've recently turned to playing games where we have to work together as a team to win at whatever it is. When you work together, I've learned that you have to play a little bit different. Jenga happens to be one of the top two anxiety-inducing games that I play. And when it comes to playing, you know, actually, number one, Perfection, do you remember that? That stupid little plastic game where you had to fit them in and before the time in, it shot out on you and, you're, and you sit here and wonder like, I wonder why I struggle with anxiety. That, that's the games we played. But you know, in Jenga, the goal of this game is to see how high you can build while not being the one to topple the tower. If I was playing solo, I'd look for any loose blocks, not so much concerned with the height, just trying to figure out what do I do not to lose. I wouldn't care if my block messed with anyone else. But if we played it as a team though, I would do all that I could to leave the edges of this because we all know that the framework, the outsides, that's where all the stability in this comes from. The center blocks, these aren't that important. I mean, it's the sides that you want to make sure you leave if you want to build a solid structure. Sometimes if you're feeling adventurous, you can even change out the center blocks, right? As long as they're both firm on the outside, that center one, in and out, no problem. I'd love for you to keep this picture in your head as we jump into a new series called I Believe. And for the rest of the summer, we're gonna be taking a look at some of the foundational truths of the Christian faith, the outside blocks in Jenga, if you will. And it might sound like a daunting task considering that like most Christians and churches disagree on so many things. And instead of working through our faith and our theology together, it's just easier to split and to leave them and we hold to our own truths, right? I know that this breaks the heart of God. And as I look across the many expressions of the Christian faith, I believe that we have more in common than we think. But too often, we've mistaken the center blocks of our faith for side blocks. And when we do this, our faith becomes weak. It becomes wobbly. And honestly, it's hard to increase our faith. Even worse, when trials, temptations, or even heretical teaching blows through, our faith topples instead of increasing. So where do we even start by looking at this? Well, 2,000 years ago, the good news is even the disciples of Jesus had an issue with this. You see, the Jewish nation believed the mantra of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and it's actually found in Leviticus chapter 24, which you're going to be reading in your soap time this week. But, but Jesus, in his biography written by Dr. Luke, teaches his followers something new about forgiveness. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 17? We're going to start in verse 3. It says this, if another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. The apostles said to the Lord, show us how to increase our faith. 
The Lord answered, if you had the faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I just love this, right? Jesus is as clear as could be. If someone sins against you and asks you to forgive them, you must forgive them. And I know the apostles understand how difficult this is because of their response. What do they say? They say, show us how to increase our faith. Jesus, this feels impossible, but if you say we need to do this, we're going to need a stronger Jenga base. So you got to help us build this up. And Jesus doesn't reprimand them for their lack of faith, but instead he gives them hope by casting some vision. If you even have the littlest bit of faith, this, this build up, the unthinkable becomes possible. And when we journey through the book of Acts and all throughout it, we see this to be true. The apostles, they continue to pray and they continue to teach all of the followers of Jesus how to increase their faith by holding to the teachings of Jesus. This doesn't mean that they always agreed. And as a matter of fact, when major issues came up, like what food was okay to eat or or like circumcision, or what day do you have to worship? Instead of splitting up and saying, will you do this, we'll do that. Here's what they did. They gathered together to figure out if this was an outside Jenga block or an inside Jenga block. Most issues they realized were inside Jenga blocks. They tried to keep the most important things that they had on these edges, right? To keep them united that's what they did, and it helped them to be on guard against these false teachers who loved to take what Jesus said, and they twisted it to fit what they wanted Jesus to say instead of what he actually said. And 2,000 years later, we're more divided than ever, playing faith Jenga against other churches and Christians, rather than working together to build a faith strong enough to stand up against the storms that we are guaranteed in life will come. It's like when that kid comes and knocks the table. No one wants that with Jenga. So for this series, we want to build some outside blocks together. And instead of me determining what truths are crucial to build our faith on, we're going to be looking at one of the oldest theological statements as our guide. A statement that most believe was first written and compiled around like 16, or 160 CE. And it's still used um, across churches all over the place, but then it was all around the Mediterranean Sea, North Africa, Rome, even as far as Spain. And this document, or this, is called the Apostles' Creed. When I say creed, I know a lot of things come to mind, especially for those of us in the Philadelphia region. I am sorry to disappoint you, but we will not be talking about Rocky Balboa training one of the apostles to fight Ivan Drago. But come on, you know that sounds like a movie we'd watch, right? When we say creed, this is simply a system of principles, beliefs, or standards guiding your life. It's the outside blocks of certain areas that you want to go after. And we are going to look at the Apostles' Creed because it's one of the oldest and most succinct statements to start building our tower of faith together. The important thing to remember about any creed is um, that they're usually shaped by the era, by the culture in which they're written and formed. I mean, it makes sense. So as we look at the Apostles' Creed, we'll be looking into a lot of history around the time that it was written to ask, like, why? Why was this here? Why did they choose that word? Why didn't they talk more about these things 
And we're going to actually learn that there's a lot of center things that they didn't mention at all. While the Bible never changes for us, the questions that we ask of the Bible do change. And so this creed is simply a response to a host of questions and issues being asked by this group of churches. So to kick off our series, I would love for you, wherever you are, if you would just stand up with me and join me like generation generations of Christ followers who have gone before us and reciting the Apostles' Creed with me. And if you don't know it, that's okay. We're going to have the words on the screen with you. Would you stand? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This, this is our pathway for the next couple of weeks, the outside of our Jenga blocks. Now, I know reading this together may have been weird for some of you, And there's a tension that we carry with statements like this. If you've grown up in one of the more liturgical Christian traditions or in the Catholic Christian tradition, you know this creed as part of your like regular church service, that it's always used. All the church, you know, kind of prays it together, speaks it together, whether they understand it or not. It's just easy to see this as maybe like another box to check off until service is over. But if you're like me and you've grown up in a more evangelical tradition, you're likely not familiar with this at all. We don't like words like creed. We don't like someone telling us what to say, when to say it. And we like to think, we we think, I think sometimes that people are mindlessly repeating something. It just loses its value. It's not worth doing. And listen, there is some truth to both of those tensions, but my hope is that collectively we'll begin to see how important a statement like this is. So if it's familiar to you, I hope that you see new value and new life in this. And if it's unfamiliar to you, I hope that your eyes will be opened to the power of communal statements and that it broadens your ability to love God and to love others. You know, this creed is also known as the baptism creed. Because throughout history, when people got baptized, they'd recite this statement as a declaration of what they were identifying with and believed. If you were with us on Wednesday night when we got to worship God and when six people got baptized, you heard that Pastor Will and I asked specific questions about belief in the Father, belief in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. This isn't new. This is a centuries-old tradition built off of this statement. I mean, how cool is that to join in with everybody? But before we tackle the first statement, I just want to make it clear that while this is called the Apostles' Creed, and it has 12 very clear statements. It was not written by the 12 apostles. 
Early on, people thought this, but there, it's just nowhere in the Bible. You're not going to see it anywhere. And in comparison to other creeds that are out there, this one's really short. And it's because at the time that it was put together, the church agreed on a lot of areas that we tend to sit and we debate over. It doesn't talk about what days we need to worship, human sexuality, culture, racism, denominations, money, immigration, refugees, mental illness, music styles, abortion, building sizes, right? None of that. All the important topics to talk about and search the Bible for are in here, but these secondary things to understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we're going to leave that over there, but we need to focus on Him. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So much of this creed is built around God the Son, Jesus. And we're going to see that like two-thirds of this creed is all about him because there were some major issues around the person of Jesus in the church and in the culture. This was written really to correct those. You'll hear about more about that over the next four weeks. But there's a quick statement in the beginning about God the Father, which we're going to look at quickly today. A quick statement about God the Holy Spirit Simply because his power, his authority, his dwelling inside everybody, this was not debated much at this point. It was, it was known. And then there's a list of affirmations intended to bring the church together, to remind them of what they were a part of. So I hope you're ready to dive into our first statement. Our first two blocks simply are, and it's short in length, but it's going to be very, very deep in meaning, and it's got a lot in there. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Turn it this way. Creator of heaven and earth. Our first block is simply that I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I is what this starts with, and the very word, the pronoun that's used to begin this, um, I Why would the authors choose to put that? And and it's simply because starting with this up front in the statement, it it would really be to teach um, each generation of Jesus' followers to the next that they wanted them to understand this for themselves. And today, we're really skeptical about the past. We're skeptical about anything that's handed down to us. I think this is because we live in such a way that in this advanced technological age, we think the truest thing that we could ever say would be something that we've discovered and we say ourselves. I worry that our pride has gotten in the way of us, like reaching back to the historical church fathers and our mothers for this great wisdom. And alongside our pride is this longing for uniqueness and individuality to be separate No one in our culture likes to be lumped into a group of people and seen, you know, oh, you're just like someone else. You know, it makes me laugh a little that, have you ever noticed that when the more someone tries to be special and unique, the more it seems that they're exactly like everybody else? Well, this creed starts with the pronoun I, and this is going to sound odd, it's like a plural I. It's it's a statement rooted not in our individuality, but in the community of the church, stretched across history, passed down. The truest and most important things that we could ever say are not individual words, but they are communal words. These are our words. So what is it I or we do? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. 
And when I say and we say, I believe, we are announcing, I trust. I trust. I'd love for you to like think of a little kid who can't swim and they're standing at the edge of the pool. You know, they're ready to jump in, they want to. And then they look into the waiting arms of their father who's encouraging them to jump. And in that moment, they believe in their father, right? I mean, sure, they can see him there. That's easy. But the question that we really need to ask is, do they trust their dad to catch them? When we say, I believe in God, it isn't just that we believe that God exists or, or that we have the opinion that God exists or that after lots of consideration, I have decided that God exists. No, 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 listen. What this creed means is that we can trust in God, that we are willing to stake our lives on God just as a child jumping off the ledge trusts their life in their father's hands, right? And we use the term father because Jesus himself did. In Matthew 6, when he's teaching the disciples how to pray, this is how he starts it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he says, pray like this, our father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. Do you notice the pronoun right up front, our? This again, this is a unifying prayer. Jesus tells us to recognize God as our father, which I know carries some pretty substantial baggage in our culture. And believe it or not, this was an issue for the people around Jesus and around the authors of the Apostles' Creed, too. Remember, a creed is written in like a certain time to respond to certain cultural tensions. And in traditional Roman culture, I, I, this is so cool to me, the figure of a father wasn't like about demonstrating love to your family. It was first and foremost about demonstrating power. Fathers were known as the, the, the praetor familias, okay, praetor familias, a, a, like a dad ruler, a master of the family. These dads were in complete control of their kids until they decided, regardless of the age of their kids. And he wasn't just the praetor familia of his family, but of his entire household. This included women, children, grandchildren, slaves, e even like free workers who served in that home. This is wild, you ready? When a child was born in that home, it would be placed on the ground. And the praetor familias, this father figure, would then come into the room and decide whether or not to pick up that child. If they picked up that child, they were going to be part of the home and part of that family. If not, they were normally abandoned in this public square or place where that kid would either die or it would be picked up by someone. You know, some people would go there to pick up kids simply so that they could raise them and later sell them into slavery. It was part of their system. And in a praetor familias home, girls, they might be kept simply so that they could be sold or married off like a bargaining chip to gain more power. To anyone living in this Roman culture, they wouldn't have known anything other than this distant master ruler type of father. And here's why this is important, because I know it sounds weird, right? But when the first followers of Jesus started to recite this creed, they didn't think of this all-loving father first. They likely had a supreme paterfamilias in mind, a ruler over all. So when we join the saints who have gone before us and saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. We aren't just talking about an ooey-gooey father who loves his kids, right? We're joining in some of the 
to the cultural context of this. I trust in God the Father, a God who is ruler, master, a God who oversees everything. Does this mean that we don't celebrate the Father's love and and all that he gives to us? No way, absolutely not. Uh, and, And it didn't mean they didn't either. This would have been talked about to everybody over and over, especially for those who had a horrible relationship with their dad. Do you think that this might have been one of the most enticing parts of the Christian faith for individuals coming from broken homes? Think about it. And understanding that God wasn't like their abusive, you know, paterfamilias, but instead a father who ruled with this ultimate authority over everything, and yet a paterfamilias who still chose to pick up their orphaned body up off the ground, Not to raise them and sell them into slavery of sin, but to invite them into their family, to sit at the table with others who have been picked up all around them. I wonder if this Roman culture gave them a deeper understanding of God's almighty power and overwhelmed them when they thought about this father's love. If we had time, I would love to explore how this impacted, you know, fathers who came to faith in Jesus When we read about how entire households are changed because of a father's faith, this kind of makes sense to me because it would just blow through the house like they look so different. So when we're looking to build up our faith, we must always remember, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And our second block simply is that he is the creator of heaven and earth. And when we declare God Almighty, We believe that he has that power that extends over all things, including the creation of heaven and earth. Now, this means that with our trust in God, we believe that he is the creator of both the physical and the spiritual. That matter and that all is physical around us is not evil in and of itself, and that the spiritual is really no better than the material. And this might sound weird, but I think this is a statement for us that's really just as important for us now as it was for them today, that there was a tension here. And I think we're surrounded by people who think that God only cares about spiritual things and everything else is irrelevant. Material things like, you know, economics, ecology, uh, biology, politics, these have nothing to do with God. He should stay out of the sciences, right? People in the first and second century who believed this, they were called Gnostics. Gnostics. It's a name that comes from the Greek word that means having knowledge. These are people who believe that everything good is spiritual and that anything material or made of matter like us is flawed and evil. So this really impacted how they viewed their bodies, how they viewed other people's bodies, humanity overall, and ultimately it impacted how they see and how they view Jesus. The problem with their line of thinking is when we look at the very first verse of Genesis, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God's creative hand is in the spiritual, right? It's in the heavens, and his creative hand is in the material. It's in the things of earth. We even read, you know, like 26 verses later in Genesis 1:27, where it says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Adam and Eve weren't like ethereal, spiritual beings floating around a spiritual world. No, they were physical human beings walking on a physical earth, 
all of which God had created. So this statement right here was meant to be a pushback at this emerging belief that God only cared about the spiritual and has called us to destroy the evil material things around us. You see, Gnostics, these people, they saw that people were made up of matter and things, and they would see people doing evil things, and therefore, we must be evil because we're made up. And it was really weird. And I like what Ben Myers has to say about Gnostics. He says, a Gnostic is like a person who sees a red wine stain on a carpet and cannot think of any solution except to cover the rest of the floor in wine. The stain's no longer visible, but at what cost? Gnosticism solves the problem of evil only by transforming everything into evil. But the opposite's also true, right? Everything isn't just material. And, and, and this statement declaring that we believe in spiritual things too. We believe in things that we can't explain, that we can't understand, and that there might never be an earthly explanation for some of the questions we have. We believe in a God who works in humanity in ways that we cannot see in the spiritual world around us all the time. And when we think everything is material and physical, we always begin to hunt for answers to questions that might never actually have answers. We'll rely in those moments on our own knowledge, on our own understanding, which unfortunately will always be very limited. Even today, 1,800 years after this was written, in an age where we know so much more about our physical world, how it works, there's still so much we don't know. And I think it might take more faith to declare this today than it did for the original authors and speakers, that there is the mystery of the faith that we believe and we trust in, is that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. These are the starting blocks that we're building on. And you know what's funny is this middle one that's right here, this one, this is for all our questions, right? This is a, this is a great one for all our discussions. I don't want to build our faith on middle blocks because that's going to tumble. But th this, when you think of creation stuff, it's like, well, well, how long was creation? Was it seven literal days? Was it a billion years? Listen, I have an opinion on this, but I've got friends who disagree with me. And to be honest, both theories and opinions, they take faith to believe in those things. We can disagree on this, but still work together to grow our faith and declare as one people together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And as we close today, could you imagine what it would look like if we, as disciples of Jesus, poured our energy into building up each other's faith instead of trying to find ways to make it topple? I mean, come on, life's hard enough. We need each other just like all believers who have come before us who have spoken this creed. And I pray that we continue to be a church and a people who prioritize the sides of our own and each other's faiths, always pointing back to Jesus, who we'll be talking about next week. I pray today, may God, the Almighty Father and Creator of heaven and earth, may He bless you as you take steps in building your faith this week. We're so glad you joined us today. 
We believe that steps of faith happen in community, and we would love for you to connect and grow with us in a small group at Crossbridge. Our chat hosts are dropping a link in the chat now so you can see all the virtual and in-person groups we have available. If you have questions or are not sure what group is best for you, shoot us a message at prayer at crossbridgecc.org. We can't wait to help you connect. We are all about loving God, loving people, and serving the world. If you want to give to help further that mission, you can head over to crossbridgecc.org give for all the ways you can contribute.